أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم يسبح لله ما في السماوات وما في الأرض الملك القدوس العزيز الحكيم والذي بعث في الأمين رسولا منهم يتلو عليهم آياته ويزكيهم ويعلمهم الكتاب والحكمة وَإِن كَانُوا مِن قَبْلُ لَفِي ضَلَالٍ مُبِينٍ وَآخَرِينَ مِنْهُمْ لَمَّا يَلْحَقُوا بِهِمْ وَهُوَ الْعَزِيزُ الْحَكِيمُ ذَلِكَ فَضْلُ اللَّهِ يُؤْتِيهِ مَنْ يَشَاءُ وَاللَّهُ ذُو الْفَضْلِ الْعَظِيمُ الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على أشرف الأنبياء والمرسلين وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين ثم أما بعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته We're beginning uh, one of the shorter surahs of this series, Surah Al-Jumu'ah and one of the probably the deepest surahs of this series also This, this surah in particular is very close to my heart for many many reasons uh, and one of them is that it really it summarizes the struggle of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa in a very comprehensive way. How did he, how, what, did, what mission did Allah send him with? What was the end goal? Is mentioned in Surah Al-Saf, two ayat, right? That on the one hand, Allah will complete his light. How will Allah do so? By the deen he sent his messenger. And how will he accomplish that goal? That's articulated in this surah. And uh, the name of the surah, Surah Al-Jumu'ah, because at the end of this surah, there's a passage, the only passage really, about the importance of the Friday prayer and the ethics of the Friday prayer. And it's really cool that that conversation comes at the end of a surah in which the central ayah, if you were to study the surah thematically, the central ayah of the surah is actually the second ayah. Everything in the surah revolves around the second ayah of the surah. Everything comes back to that. And what's really incredible is at the end, this, this extra emphasis on Jumu'ah, tells us that in, the, in what the messenger had to do والسلام, and the mission he had to accomplish, Jum'ah itself had a very strategic importance. It was of paramount importance. The Friday prayer, the congregation itself, is a big part of getting the Prophet's mission accomplished. <coughs> and we'll have that conversation when we get there. So we begin again with tasbih. Like these are the musabbihat as I mentioned to you before. يُسَبِّحُ لِلَّهِ مَا فِي السَّمَاوَاتِ وَمَا فِي الْأَرْضِ Everything in the skies, whatever's in the skies, and whatever's in the earth, continues to declare the perfection of Allah. I didn't tell, tell you something about the word ma before. The word ma, uh, uh, in these particular ayat, is actually for the purpose of ibham. We know so many things on, in the skies. And we know so many things on the earth. But there's so many more things we don't know in the skies, and there's so many more things we don't know in the earth. And when, when you talk about unknowns, then ma is used. When you talk about knowns, then alladhi would have been used. Everything, in, whatever's in the skies and the earth, alladhi could be used too. But ma is used to suggest there's so much you don't know about the skies, and there's so much you don't know about the earth, and all of it, what you know and what you don't know, is continuously declaring Allah's perfection. I want you to remember the conversation we had last time about sabaha, swimming, floating, maintaining the status of Allah, not saying anything not appropriate to Him. Again, this surah is unique. Because in this tasbih, usually the fawasil, fawasil by the way, the term used for the endings of ayat. So Mufassirun coined this term and it became popularized. The singular is fasila and the plural is fawasil. So the fawasil are the endings of ayat. The fawasil usually have two names of Allah. 
If they do have names of Allah, they're typically two names of Allah. This surah has a unique beginning because the Fasila has Al-Malik, Al-Quddus, Al-Aziz, Al-Hakim. It has four names of Allah. Al-Malik, Al-Quddus, Al-Aziz, Al-Hakim. And that's curious because that's not usually the case in the Quran that Allah mentions four names instead of two at the end of an ayah. Even in the previous uh, Musabbiha, we read Al-Aziz, Al-Hakim. يُسَبِّحُ لِلَّهِ مَا فِي السَّمَوَاتِ وَفِي الْأَرْضِ Al-Malik. Al-Malik is the Arabic word for the sovereign, the king. As opposed to Al-Malik, by the way. Malik is, a, is an owner. Malik is owner. And it, the way I describe this concept in Darshan Surah Al-Fatiha is that Malik is a micro term. And Malik is a macro term. Because an owner, I could own a marker and I'm a Malik. But I, I'm not a Malik of this marker. That would mean I'm the sovereign of this marker. That just, doesn't make sense. To be a sovereign, to be a king, you better have large territory that you're going to be in charge of, right? So the word Malik is in grand terms. It's not used in micro terms. But Malik is used in the smallest terms. So, Amliku Sayyara, I own a car. Walakin I'm not the king of the car. You know, even though some people put crowns in their cars and stuff, but you're not the king of the car, you're just the owner. Now, Al-Malik, Allah mentions his name as the king, the sovereign. And the sovereign means the one, you know, it has several implications. Of course, one of them is, uh, you know, how is a kingdom recognized? Like, nowadays, we're, we don't live in many kingdoms. You know, like, recently I was in one, in Saudi, right? It's a kingdom. And you know, one of the really clear signs that you're in a kingdom? Quite a few buildings with gigantic posters of what? The king. There are pretty strong indications you're in a kingdom. You know, they're pretty strong indications. They're, they're like gigantic department stores with the king's name on them. You know, or a giant poster of him. And that's mild. There are other kingdoms in the Arab world where you're legally obligated to have a picture of the king in every store. You're legally obligated to have some kind of, you know, sign of the king. Which is a show of loyalty. Because, you know, in, in other forms of citizenship, you don't have to prove your loyalty but in a kingdom, politically, it's very important for a king to know that you are displaying loyalty. Whether you're showing loyalty or not, you better be displaying loyalty because the perception of loyalty becomes very important. Regardless, the point I'm trying to make is in societies that have kingdoms, there are necessarily signs of kingship. There are signs of kingship, indications of kingship. And so, like, you know, back in the day, if you entered into a kingdom, you're traveling by donkey and you don't know that you've crossed a border and you've entered a kingdom. First things you'll start noticing are flags, monuments, statues, you know, names of the king, soldiers bearing his mark, whatever. These are all signs of a kingdom, right? So I want you to just keep that in the back of your mind as we, as we go forward. Allah mentions his, king, his kingship. Then he says, Al-Quddus. Al-Quddus. Al-Quddus comes from the word Quds, which means purity. And it's used specifically in the sense of spiritual purity. Spiritual purity. And Quds is actually different from Tazkiyah or Zakat. Zakat is also purity. But Zakat is purity that is attained. Purity that's attained. In other words, you weren't pure and you achieved Zakat. So we give Zakat on our money because until we give it, the money is not pure. We engage in the act of Tazkiyah because without Tazkiyah, we are impure and Tazkiyah cleanses us. Okay? So, you know, good deeds are a form of Tazkiyah. Good deeds are a form of Tazkiyah, right? But Quds is something that's inherently pure in and of itself. It didn't, wasn't purified. There was no process for it to get to purification. 
And the verb that comes from it is from the taf'il form. Qaddasa yuqaddisu what? Taqdis. Taqdis is to declare or to acknowledge that something is inherently pure. It's not to purify something. Purifying something is zakka yuzaki tazkiya. That's purifying something. But taqdis is to declare something's purity. In other words, it was always pure, you just didn't acknowledge it. You, didn't, you just never acknowledged it. But when you do taqdis, you said, oh, that is inherently pure. And again, in the spiritual sense. Allah is one of Allah's names. Al-Quddus, this is fu'ul. This is one of the siyah, one of the patterns of mubalagha. The extremely, the incredibly pure, inherently pure. And some imply from this in tafsir literature, the source of all purity. The source of all things that are pure. So everything that we know that is pure in the world is sourced in what Allah Azza wa, in Allah Azza wa Himself. Now, you know, from it, there's a lot of theological discussion and, you know, really beautiful spiritual nuances and insights that have been written about. But I, I'm not going to go into all of them. I just point at a couple of things. You know, the source of purity for us physically in the world is water. Right? Water is not just tahir and fiqh, you learn it's tahur. Right? It's a purifier. So you attain purity by taking a shower, by wudu, etc., etc. And Allah Azza wa Jal is his arsh. What do we know about his arsh? It's on water. So the, 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 the sanctified arsh is And our you know our source of purity is water itself, subhanAllah. And there are there are other things like you know, for instance, the closer you and the more you declare Allah's purity, you cleanse your concept of who Allah is. And you acknowledge, you know, Allah being free from all impurities and impurities also implies flaws. You know? The more you do that, the more what happens to you? You start getting cleaner. Your insides start getting cleaner. Okay? So this is one, a couple of the brief benefits of the word Al-Quddus. So the source of all purity, the incredibly pure. Al-Aziz. Al-Aziz. By the way, uh, you know, the, the holy lands are also called Al-Quds. Al-Quds for the reason? Because they're pure lands. They're, you know, and they're inherent, in and of themselves they're pure. Allah just chose them to be that way. Okay. Al-Aziz, Al-Aziz is the ultimate authority. And Aziz combines two meanings. Essentially, Aziz is a combination of two things. Unfortunately, in some translations, Aziz is translated as the mighty. The mighty, the powerful. That's actually Al-Qawi. The, the word Al-Qawi is the, the, the mighty, or the one possessing power. Al-Aziz combines two elements. It's respect and authority. Respect, authority. So, you know, it's possible in the world for somebody to have authority, but they don't have any respect. It's also possible that somebody is respectful, respectable, and respected by people, but they don't possess any authority. That's possible too. But Al-Aziz necessarily implies someone who possesses power, authority, and as a result also, at the, at the same time actually, not as a result, but at the same time commands, respect. Because people in authority, and this is very easy for us to understand now, people in authority are usually the subject of, of a lot of criticism. People of authority are usually, you know, and if they are respected, it's always almost forced. But a true Aziz is someone who's, despite the authority they have and the position of criticism they're in, they're still commanding people's respect because of who they are. So that's Al-Aziz. And finally, of course, Al-Hakim. Al-Hakim being the wise, and the source of all wisdom. And it's fa'il. Both Aziz and Hakim are fa'il, which means they're ism sifa, which means they're constants. They're constants. 
So the permanent, uh, you know, the, the one permanently worthy of respect and permanently in a position of authority. The one who's all wise. And Hakim also, by the way, fa'il from Hakim. Hakim means ruler, not just wise. So Hakim implies someone who has constant rule and the possessor constantly of wisdom. Four names of Allah And we'll, still, we'll further explore what the benefit of these names are and why these names are mentioned inshallah as we go forward. So the first ayah is about Allah Himself. That's very obvious. The first ayah is about Allah Himself. The next ayah is about the Messenger minhum. This also makes this surah a little unique among the musabbihat. Because in a good number of these surahs, Allah starts by mentioning the universe and then He criticizes something about humanity. He criticizes something about humanity or makes a demand from humanity that they're not really fulfilling. So if you remember Surah Al-Hadid, there were six ayat dedicated to the names and attributes of Allah and His qualities and His kingdom. And then, آمِنُوا بِاللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ وَأَنْفِقُوا مِمَّا جَعَلَكُمْ مُسْتَخْلَفِينَ فِيهِ وَمَا لَكُمْ لَا تُؤْمِنُونَ بِاللَّهِ What's wrong with you? Surah Al-Saf سَبَّحَ لِلَّهِ مَا فِي السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ وَهُوَ الْعَزِيزُ الْحَكِيمِ يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا لِمَا تَقُولُونَ مَا لَا تَفْعَلُونَ What's up with you? Why aren't you doing what you're supposed to do? Why do you say what you don't do? There was criticism. So there was the declaration of Allah's greatness, His perfection, then criticism. But this surah, beautifully, after Allah mentions Himself, He mentions His Messenger وسلم, And it, it stands unique for another reason, as I'll explain. He's the one who appointed, raised. From among those who cannot read. Unlettered. Ummi comes from the word um. Um means what? Mother. So you, you received about as much of a formal education as you had when you came out of your mother. That's what ummi means. Meaning you're, you're the same, you're as educated formally as you were when you were a baby. That's literally ummi. I don't know how to read. Okay? So this, he, he appointed among the ummiyin, among the unlettered, rasulam minhum, a messenger belonging to them, a messenger from among themselves. You will learn a little bit later that one of the addressees of this surah is the Jews. It's the Jews because the sacred day of the Jews was what? It was the Sabbath, it was a Saturday. And now Allah has made the sacred day a Friday. And this is a Madari surah and they were listening. And Allah actually talks about them at some length. And one of the great criticisms they had of the Prophet is that he is from among the Ummiyeen. And Allah says, what? That's an insult? That's an honor. I'll make that part of revelation. He pointed a messenger among the Ummiyeen. Minhum, from among them, yes, from among them. And what does he do, this Ummi prophet, this unlettered prophet? Obviously, if he's unlettered, he can't read. He can't read. What's the very next words? Yatlu alayhim ayati. What does yatlu mean? Tilawa. To read. He doesn't just read, he reads on to people. Reads on to people implies he teaches people. Yatlu alayhim ayati. He reads on to them his ayat. His miraculous ayat. So this already the word yatlu inherently implies a miracle given to the Prophet ﷺ. And that is that he was reading the Qur'an onto the people. And reading is fundamentally different from speaking. And this is an important conversation, folks. Reading is fundamentally different from speaking. If I ask one of you here, read this out loud. I hand you the mic and you read it out loud. Even if the rest of your classmates did not know, they can't see you. The sister side can't see you guys. And you're reading it. Can they tell you're not speaking that you're reading? Can any human being tell when somebody's speaking when somebody's reading? You can tell, right? 
There's a clear difference between reading and speaking. There's a clear, clear difference. Especially if you know someone. Especially if you know somebody and they're speaking, you can tell they're speaking. And when they're reading, you can tell they are reading. Because in reading, you know, this is a linguistics problem, but when you're reading, you know, the author has his own speech pattern. The author has his own style of composition. And when you're reading, especially not your own work, you're reading somebody else's authorship, it becomes extremely distinct to those that know you and are used to listening to you. That's not how he normally talks. That is not, where did you memorize that from? And even if you memorize somebody else's line and say it, you're afraid to be like, yeah, where'd you get that from? That ain't you. They can just tell. There is that huge difference between reading and speaking. Now the Prophet ﷺ has been speaking to the Meccans for years. He's been speaking to the audience for years. But 40 years. And revelation comes, and now he is what? Reading. Because what he's saying is actually not his own words. And it's not just from the revelation point of view. Even anybody listening is like, where did you, what? What is that? He never talks like that. Where did that come from? Where did that come from? Others add an insight. I don't know how authentic the narration is, but you know, in one of the, one of the uh, citations that Ibn Ishaq is that the Prophet ﷺ is attributed to have said, As though the Qur'an was written onto my heart. You know how the ayat say, نَزَلَ بِهِ الرُّحُ الْأَمِينَ عَلَىٰ قَلْبِكَ Surah Al-Shu'ara Allah says, Allah, the Ruhu Al-Ameen, Jibreel came down with it, meaning the Qur'an, onto your heart. So the Qur'an was revealed onto the heart of the Prophet So you, you and I read from our eyes, and the implication is the Prophet reads from his heart. It's revealed onto his heart. And, I, and that seems to, you know, I don't know, physically written on, but it's ka'anna. It's an, an, an analogy that's given. Even in the first revelation, it's not like the Prophet ﷺ was shown a piece of paper and told read. It wasn't like he was shown a scroll and told read. He was grabbed, and he was shaken, and he was told to read. So where is he reading from, you see? So it's, a, it's a different from reading from the eyes. Now he's reading from the, heart, the re- revelation he receives in his heart. But even then, you can clearly tell this is not his speech. This is not his speech pattern. Actually, in linguistic studies... Inshallah, one of you will do a PhD in linguistics, and then you'll do a linguistics comparison between hadith and Qur'an. They're totally different. The syntax is different, the structures are different, the vocabulary is worlds apart. The vocabulary used in hadith, a good chunk of it is just not found in the Qur'an. It's just not used, you know. And hadith is eloquent in its own right. It's, it's gorgeous in its own right. It's a part of revelation too. But Qur'an is its own revelation, it's its own syntax. It's Allah's speech. It's Allah's speech. So there is a, there is a difference. And, and those of you that are familiar with the discussion, the, you know, the, the way to understand the difference between hadith and Qur'an, even though they're both revelation, but linguistically, how are they different? Linguistically, how are they different? I, you know, it's a long conversation, but the one-liner of it is, Qur'an is the word of Allah, literally. Like, Yusabihu came from Allah. Lillahi came from Allah. Hadith is actually the teaching from Allah. But the words themselves chosen by the Prophet ﷺ. So it's inspired, it's, it's wisdom, it's divine wisdom, it's divine teaching. But the Prophet ﷺ put it in his own words. The words are not Allah's, the words are the Prophet ﷺ. Though the teachings are from Allah, the wisdoms are from Allah. You understand this difference? This even applies to Hadith Qudsi. Even in Hadith Qudsi, you, can, you, you, know, the, you know the difference between quoting and paraphrasing? Right? Quran is the messenger quoting Allah. 
In a hadith Qudsi, the Prophet is paraphrasing Allah Like in summarizing the Prophet's mission, Allah talked about Qur'an. And by doing so, what's he doing? He's cleansing them intellectually, giving them a sense of proportion, having them understand that the ethical <laughs> foundations of Islam, the justice of our deen, you know, doing right by people is such a big priority. And then there comes the legal. You know, and you know what's happened to, to us as Muslims? Travel the Muslim world. The religious Muslims are very legally conscious, halal haram, but socially very unconscious. In, in the sense of justice to others, rights of others, very unconscious. When it comes to halal meat, big priority. How much does the Quran emphasize doing right by others? Compared to how much Quran talks about dietary restrictions. I'm not saying dietary restrictions aren't important. But we've emphasized something and we've de-emphasized something else. You know, there's a proportion that Quran gives in and of itself. It allows the balance. This is a little bit about the intellectual side. Of course, on the, the, the third dimension that should be mentioned about the intellectual side, intellectual cleansing, is that we're living in the world of multiple philosophies. Right? College students, by the time they've done two years of college, have been exposed to quite a diverse set of worldviews, and they're almost compelled, in a bullying sense, towards agnosticism. You're better off believing nothing. You're better off living a life of, I'm not sure. There's other ways of looking at it. That's, you're pushed in that direction almost. Right? The Qur'an is a response to intellectual false, intellectually hollow philosophies. It, it contains the, those responses. I experienced that for myself. I didn't read this in a book. I was experiencing agnosticism at one point in my life. I'd taken a whole one too many philosophy courses. It's like eating too much junk food. You know? And you need a detox. And then I went, I was so grateful, I went to, through the Dora Tajma Quran. It was the entire Quran in Urdu translation, live in New York City with Dr. Abdul Samir, my Arabic teacher, who became my Arabic teacher in the future. But my first exposure to him was the entire Quran as a conversation, one juz a night in Ramadan. I was like, Taraweeh goes until 11, and he goes until 3. That's what it was, 4 hours a day, every day, 30 days. But I was hooked, man. Because you know when you're listening, and you're really paying attention, you forget that there's a guy standing in front of you. It's just you and Quran. I was, I've never heard like speech like where you don't even feel like it's uh, somebody talking to you. It's Allah talking to you. This guy helped me connect to the Quran. So at the end of the, the program, I was like, I've never heard anything like that. This is the first time I thought Allah's, this is Allah's word. I actually felt like Allah was talking to me. But it, that was through you. I want to get it for myself. He says, okay, learn the Arabic. That's what he said, exact words. <laughs> I was like, how? Next week. Okay, see you there. <laughs> that was that. But, you know, as a youth, you know, you, you try to learn about Dean and you pick up, back in the day, you pick up tapes after Juma. Guys selling tapes outside and VHSs outside. Nowadays, you guys download or YouTube, whatever. Right? And you fill your, your iPods with MP3s, Kalamullah or whatever, right? And just listening to everything, everything, everything. There's so much stuff. And, and I was into so much stuff too. I listened to lots of different things. Such a, was such a wide variety of stuff. But man, did I get hooked on Quran. I was like, okay, I know there's a lot out there, 
but I'm going to make this my priority. I'm just going to study this. I want to get a time, get time a little bit. I'll study other things too. I just need to, I just need to know what's going on in this book. I need this, and I've been hooked since, and I still can't get enough. I still can't. So this is, this is on the intellectual side. Now a little bit on the spiritual side. What does spiritual cleansing mean? Spiritual cleansing means. You know, you have anger problems, you have jealousy problems, you have laziness problems, you have character flaws, character flaws. And the Qur'an starts hacking away at those character flaws. You have ghafla, you're heedless. You have heartless prayer. When you start paying attention to the Qur'an and it's read onto you enough times, it starts, you start becoming conscious. You start just, you can't ignore, you can only ignore it so much. It just starts hitting you. And maybe it doesn't hit you every time. But now the frequency of the times it hits you gets increased because you're just exposed to Qur'an so much more. So there are more occasions that you're moved to tears, not less. You know? And it just keeps going. And it keeps purifying you. And then you find something. You find that people that don't have an exposure, a spiritual exposure to the Qur'an, they still feel a spiritual void. Human beings were given a, a hole in their heart to fill. You know, there was a hole in their heart that could only be filled with revelation. With, with revelation. And you know when that hole is not filled? Then it's filled with movies, and it's filled with music, and it's filled with, you know, video games, it's filled with addictions, it's filled with something else. And in the religious tradition, when Qur'an becomes a distant, it's a ilmi thing, it's a scholar's thing, it's not every Muslim thing, then you become a culture where, you know, and I, I don't say halal or haram, but your spiritual high is nasheeds. Or it's like, you know, these other creative adhkar. Or these, you know, these other practices, spiritual practices that are supposed to bring you closer to Allah. But you know what? Spiritually, the Prophet ﷺ gave us, the, the highest form of spirituality was given to the Prophet ﷺ when he reached the highest place any human beings ever reached. He got, he reached you know, by the arsh of Allah, and what was he given? Salat. And what is most of Salat? Standing and reciting Qur'an. The most spiritual experience that is like dictated by revelation is revelation itself. In prayer. But when that's empty, and that becomes just like, you know, there's Salat, but then there's going to be real dhikr. You know? And that, that real dhikr, you know why that becomes popular? Because something's missing in salat. And people go on a campaign about saying, this isn't right, this isn't from the sunnah, this isn't this, this isn't that, that's, that's a weird practice, and you shouldn't do this. Or you should. I don't talk about any of that. I'm like, you know why that exists? Because there's a spiritual void. And people just haven't been told how to fill it. They don't know how to fill it. And they've, unfortunately, even Muslims have underestimated the spiritual power of the Qur'an. That it does purify. It does purify. And then you supplement that with the adhkar. You supplement that with, you know, a teacher that can teach you du'as and supplications and, you know, beautiful aspects of worship. Fine. Fine. But the, at the heart of it all, well, use a key. He purifies them. And when this purification, this cleansing happens, only then... There's a wa. Why is, you know, it's atuf, which means this is not simultaneous. This is one, and then this, and then this, and then this. So wa can, can even be like in a progressive sense. It could be simultaneous too. kitab, And he teaches them the law. What is the law? This is halal. This is haram. 
This is what you have to do. This is what you better not touch. Okay, this is permissible for you. Here's how you deal with financial transactions. Here's how you run your business. Here's how you get married. Here's how you treat your wife. Here's how you treat your husband. Law. Why would people care about the law if they're not cleaned on the inside? They wouldn't. They wouldn't. I'm not intellectually convinced what the benefits are of following Sharia law. It seems too restrictive to me. I don't know if it's conducive to a modern lifestyle. I think we have a really narrow-minded view of Sharia. I think we need to be a little more broad-minded and think of it as restrictions that were applicable to a different time. You can use big words, bro. Just, God told you not to do it. Don't do it. Don't give me big words to justify why you're drinking a Budweiser. You just, there's something missing inside you. There's something not there. The tazkiyah hasn't happened. I argue when Quran is truly talked about, even a little, even a little, you don't have to have debates about halal and haram meat. You don't have to have debates about alcohol and pork and you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, lottery, lo- lotteries on and store owner, Muslim store owners. You don't have to have those conversations. They will drop it themselves. They'll let it go because Quran had that effect on them. You and I can't. You and I just can't. Revelation has that power. If it can change like a dangerous gangster like Umar anhu before Islam, Quran changed them. Quran changed them. You know? Then I mean, we're just underestimating its power to change people. It's one of its miracles. It changes people. You know? And then you teach the book. الكتاب, and then once you start applying the book, if, you know, by the way, when somebody truly teaches you something, that means you are utilizing it. And when you do, then finally he teaches the wisdom. And you know what we think of as wisdom? So funny. We think of wisdom as people that drop like epic lines on Twitter. That's deep, bro. Question? Can, can Quran have that power without the I think so. I think so. A Quran can have that power if it's genuinely communicated in any language. And I say that just from experience. I don't say that because I read, read that somewhere. But I, I believe it can. And that's why I believe there needs to be a campaign, an international campaign of Qur'an being translated not in print, but in speech. As a, as a talk. It has its power. You know? But let me tell you a little bit about hikmah. Hikmah is not some guy that drops big lines or some guy who speaks in really abstract terms. Life is like a tree. Whoa. So deep. That's wise, man. Mm-mm. That's not wisdom in Islam. Actually, not even in the Arabic language. Hikmah is described as beneficial knowledge and then acting upon it. Hikmah could be something as simple and rudimentary as fire burns. And therefore, I'm not going to touch it. The guy that knows fire burns has knowledge. The guy that knows fire burns and doesn't touch it has wisdom. <laughs> so it's possible that you have knowledge but you don't have wisdom, meaning you know it's right, you know it's wrong, but you still do the wrong thing. So the guy touches fire. Didn't you know it burns? Yeah. Why'd you do it? I don't know. But you just said you do know. Missing wisdom. The hikmah at the end is very powerful, if you understand it in its linguistic origin, in that sometimes people learn and learn, and learn, and learn, but they don't learn, they only learn knowledge, they don't learn 
wisdom. So they learned the law, but they don't learn wisdom. So the, prof the prophetic methodology was teaching law, and then actually teaching people how to be able to live by it, and to, to uphold it. The practical dimension of it is wisdom. Wisdom isn't higher, deeper discussions. Wisdom is tarbiyah. Okay, here's, now that you've learned it, here's how you live by it. And here's what you do when you make a mistake, because you're a human being. Sahaba made mistakes. And they would come to the Prophet and he'd teach them wisdom. Okay, this is the istighfar you make. This is how you avoid doing this again. That's wisdom. This, these four things are the Prophet's formula given by Allah to turn a person around. This is what turns a person around. We talk about turning our communities around. Turning the Muslims around. You know, turning the people that need our da'wah around. Allah turned this formula, turned the Makkans around. I mean, you're talking about the worst of the worst. It turned some of them around. You know? And that's, that, that's the, this is the formula. And so every dimension of this, it becomes critical. We, alhamdulillah, have made some progress in yu'allimuhumul kitab, I argue. We Muslims, today in the information age, as information in all dimensions has become ma massively accessible, religious information has become more accessible now. You can take more classes now, courses now, read more books now than probably ever before in human history, even on Islam. You can learn more about Islam now, easily, even in translated languages, even if you don't know Arabic, than ever before. So somebody can have a deep discussion about you know, the four schools of thought without knowing Arabic, because they've read a PhD thesis or you know, done, done some studies or whatever. But the other three, two before and one after, I personally don't see that we're getting anywhere there. We haven't really, we don't have a program. And then, hikmah at the end, how do you live by this stuff? We don't have a program for that. And we need to develop a program that's not global necessarily, but very, very local. Two, three, four friends get together. They have a knowledgeable one among them who's teaching them. They're learning Quran together. They're memorizing a little together. You know, their, their, thought, their ideas are being cleansed together. They're helping each other reach a little more. And then they're learning the book and then they're acting and they're encouraging each other to act in the right way and make the right decisions together. This happens when people get together and encourage each other to do the right thing. This is why the, the, this is the power of community. The people stuck around the Prophet ﷺ so he could ex execute this. Even though much before, they were in clear, open misguidance. They were lost. These people were out there. And that's one of the most beautiful endings, philosophical endings to an ayah. Allah talks about these people being turned around by the Prophet ﷺ. And then He says, these people were, if you saw them before, they were goners. You would never think this guy is going to be something amazing. Wait, for, for a long time, they were just way out there. You would never see potential in that guy. But Allah turned them around. So Allah is teaching us that there are people that, you know, if this formula is followed, Allah can turn around whoever He wants. That's not us. We're not going to change anybody. But you stick to this, this formula, and Allah will, by means of this, turn people around that you wouldn't even know. You wouldn't even imagine. So awesome, this ayah is about us. And there are others, other than themselves, other than the unlettered, other than the Arabs of Makkah. Others. 
And when the Ansar read this, they said, Oh, that's us. We're not the, we're not the Meccans. But Allah didn't say, Wa ahla Medina, people of Medina. He didn't say that. He didn't say, you know, he didn't mention other villages and other tribes. He just says, other than the, those original. Well, guess what? You and I are akharina minhum also. When the Muslims got to Persia and so many Persians became Muslim, they're akharina minhum too. When Islam reached Europe, they're akharina minhum too. When Islam came to India, we're akharina minhum too. Allah called it in Surah Al-Jumu'ah. You know, this, this message came to the Ummiyeen, which was actually a burn to the Jews. Because when they, they heard, those Jews of Arabia, when they heard that the message came to the Ummiyeen, like, Ummiyeen, that was the, the whole reason we believed they, they don't deserve revelation. And the other problem in, the, in, that, in their tradition was you can only have this revelation and guidance if you belong to this ethnic group. And it can't just be exported to others. You can't just accept this, you know, it's ours. We own it. Allah says, no, actually this time, other people will jump right in. <laughs> other than them, that haven't even joined them yet. You know, lamma, not yet, remember? In lam lamma. They haven't joined them yet. Lamma yalhukubihim. Awwal azizul hakim, and he's the ultimate authority, all wise. Allah is already calling the ummah will be international. It'll be multicultural. There'll be so many different kinds of people that haven't joined the Sahaba yet. But they will. And what's yalhukubihim also, it's so beautiful, and that one day we will be joined with them in Jannah too. So we haven't joined them in Islam. Or they haven't, we hadn't yet joined them in Islam. And also once they, there, so many have made it to, to Jannah already. And by Allah's permission, when you and I go, we'll be joining them. There are so many others that haven't yet joined them. And he's the ultimate, ultimate authority all wise. ذَلِكَ فَضْلُ اللَّهِ That is the favor of Allah. يُؤْتِيهِ مَنْ يَشَاءُ He gives it to whoever he wants. This is also, again, a snub to those who believe revelation comes to a select few. It doesn't, it's not the domain of everyone. It's not the domain of everyone. Allah says that's the favor of Allah. He gives it to whoever He wants. Another important consideration in this ayah, if you, if you, if you look at it in the context of the discussion about the Qur'an itself. By the way, al-hikmah, I didn't tell you something about what Imam, Imam Malik, Imam Shafi'i said about hikmah. They said hikmah is sunnah. He teaches them the book and the wisdom. So they said the book is the Qur'an and the hikmah is the sunnah, which is completely complementary to what I've been telling you. I've been telling you hikmah is the practical dimension. And what is the practical teachings? The sunnah. They saw it for what it is. Like they, these people, they didn't just, they, they gave one word explanations, but they're deep. When you study the word hikmah on its own merits, you come to the same conclusion. Subhanallah. Anyhow, ذَلِكَ فَضْلُ اللَّهِ That is the favor of Allah. What's the favor of Allah? That the messenger is making an entire nation educated in the book. Right? An entire nation is getting cleansed. The ayat are written on, recited onto them. You know what the biggest corruption in religion is? Religions are, is there corruption in religions in the world? Sure. There are means by which people are manipulated. It becomes an industry very quickly. Social manipulation, economic manipulation. You know? Riots are caused by religious fanatics. For their own gains. They use people like sheep. But you know when that happens? When, one, when a few are knowledgeable, and most rely on their knowledge. Few people are knowledgeable in religion. Everybody else says, he's saying it, it must be right. But you know what? Now Allah is teaching us, yes, there will be fuqaha, there will be you know, mujtahid, there will be ulama, there will be people of high caliber. But the average Muslim will at least be educated in what? 
At least in Quran they will know. So they know their priorities and then they, they know crazy when they hear it. They can't be manipulated. This is a unique religious teaching that did not exist before us in this way. That did not exist before us. The religions before us, the main obstacle to Islam for the Jewish community was the rabbis. The main obstacle to Islam for the Christian community was the ministers. Who knew more than everybody else? And actually even saw it. Even Allah says, يَعْرِفُونَا هُكَمَا يَعْرِفُونَا أَبْنَاهُمْ They're recognizing like they recognize their own sons. They, they, their research yields the result that this is revelation. They can't, they can't bear the thought of telling their people though. And their people can't see it for themselves because their people themselves are not at a mass level educated in revelation. If their people were educated in revelation, they would see revelation for what it is. They'd be able to tell. Most Christians you talk to don't know the Bible. They, don't, they simply don't know it. They know select passages that they've heard in Sundays. That's it. They don't actually know the Bible. You know? It's the same of other people of faith. Our religion was supposed to be socially, not just in the teachings, socially it was supposed to be different in that the minimal, the average Muslim was supposed to be versed in the Qur'an. The average Muslim was supposed to know Qur'an and was supposed to have this exposure. And by the way, one quick thing about that, Umar radiallahu anhu, you know, during his khilafah, he would go around and check if every masjid, every few group of Muslims have a halaqah of Qur'an going on or not. Like he saw that as a necessary piece of maintaining decent citizenship in the Muslim ummah. We have to maintain the integrity of the ummah, the Qur'an education needs to continue. That is the favor of Allah. He grants it to whoever He wants. And Allah is the owner of the ultimate favor. I'll stop here inshallah ta'ala because the first passage is done. I know I'm taking extra long in these surahs, but I can't help it. Barakallahu li wa lakum fil Quran al-Hakim wa nafa'ni wa iyaakum bil ayat wa dhikr al-Hakim. أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم مثل الذين حملوا التوراة ثم لم يحملوها كمثل الحمار يحمل أسفارا بئس مثل القوم الذين كذبوا بآيات الله والله لا يهدي القوم الظالمين قل يا أيها الذين هادوا إن زعمتم أنكم أولياء لله من دون الناس فتمنوا الموت إن كنتم صادقين ولا يتمنونه أبدا بما قدمت أيديهم والله عليم بالظالمين رب اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري واحلل عقدة من لساني يفقه قولي فالحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيد الأنبياء والمرسلين وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين ثم أما بعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته الآية الخامسة من سورة الجمعة مثل الذين حملوا التوراة ثم لم يحملوها the example of those who were burdened with the Torah. Hummilu Torah, the Torah was burdened onto them. 
or they were burdened with the Torah. Hummilu comes from tahmil. Hamala yuhamilu, tahmilan, and the majhul form would be hummila. So hum hummilu, they were they were burdened, and this is actually, uh, you know, this hamala ala, and there's tahmil, and tahmil is more powerful, meaning they were given the the huge burden of the Torah. Torah was not a light burden. It was a major, major burden, which means it was a major responsibility. To carry something in Arabic is to carry, to hold, uphold a responsibility. So tahmil is in the sense of responsibility. Then they didn't even carry it a little. Then they didn't even carry it a little. You know, from tahmil, not even hamal. They didn't even do hamal of it. It's the mujarrad form, right? So it implies that they were given a huge responsibility, and forget it, they didn't even take care of a little bit of it. كَمَثَلِ الْحِمَارِ The example, or the, their example is the example of a donkey. Now notice, مَثَل in Arabic is a means of giving the example of something. And when you say example, it's not exactly the same. Then ka in Arabic, like bata, kaflam, wa, what is ka? Like. And مَثَل, example, and ka, like, are synonymous. So you could say, for instance, in the Arabic language, مَثَلُ الَّذِينَ حُمِّلُوا التَّورَاتِ ثُمَّ لَمْ يَحْمِلُوهَا مَثَلُ الْحِمَارِ Their example is the example of this. Or you could say, مَثَلُ الَّذِينَ حُمِّلُوا التَّورَاتِ ثُمَّ لَمْ يَحْمِلُوهَا الْحِمَارِ The example of them is the donkey. You could just make it the khabar. Or you could say, كَحِمَارِ أو كَالْحِمَارِ But actually in the ayah, it's كَمَثَلِ الْحِمَارِ This is a form in rhetoric of tab'id, of distancing. I'm giving you the example of a donkey, but even a donkey is much better, actually. But the closest thing would be the donkey, really. They're remotely something. These people that made this, did this are something like the donkey. Now, notice, this is the gross incompetence and the gross uh, uh, misinterpretation of some. Oh, Allah says the Jews are like donkeys. Allah didn't say Bani Israel. Allah didn't say Yahud. Allah specifically mentioned and restricted this conversation to an act. To an act. There were people burdened with the responsibility of revelation, in that case, Torah. And those people didn't carry that responsibility. Those people are remotely close, even though they're far worse, than even the donkey, Kalhimar. Bani Israel in and of itself is not a curse word. It's not a bad word. It's an honorable name. Bani Israel has the name of a prophet in it. These people received more prophets than anybody else. And yes, they had a lot of failures. But who are we to talk? <laughs> they had a lot of mess-ups in a good chunk of their population. But that does not take away the righteous among them. That Allah compliments just as well in the Qur'an. You know, وَكَأَيِّمْ مِن نَبِيٍ قَاتَلَ مَعَهُ رِبِّيُّونَ كَثِيرٌ Ribbi is actually the, the, the Hebrew term and the English term is now what? Rabbi. How many prophets along the side of whom rabbis fought? People of Rabb, Ribbi. The Ya and Nisba. You know Ya of Nisba? So Rabbani and Ribbi are like people of the Rabb. Godly people that aided the prophets of Bani Israel. So our, you know, our modern political situation has led us to become very casually anti-Semitic. Very casually. And this is actually a, a, like grossly against the teachings of our deen. Like it's a serious violation of our deen. We're supposed to be able to learn lessons from those who made mistakes in the past. And there are people among Bani Israel who made mistakes in the past. 
And the reason, there's two important things to, to mention here on the subject of anti-Semitism. One of the, the, the reason Allah Azza wa mentions those who made mistakes among them in particular, it, because they're closest to us. They're the most similar to us. If you actually study Orthodox Judaism or go to a traditional synagogue and sit with a rabbi, you will you'll like feel like, oh my God, you feel like the fifth school of thought. If we have four schools of thought, this must be the fifth one. They're incredibly similar. Like you'd be shocked how similar. Their synagogue politics are like masjid politics. You can't even tell the difference. You just change the labels. It's the same stuff. Same stuff. It's incredible. But then the question arises, how come Quran says, Ya Bani Israel, Uthkuru ni'mati allati al'amtu alaykum. You know, but sons of Israel, make mention of the favor I favored upon you. I gave you, I shaded you with clouds, I did this, I did that, I did that. Allah mentioned so many things He did for who? Bani Israel. And He doesn't say them, He says you. But the weird thing is, the people that Allah was talking to at the time were in Mecca or in Medina. But the, Allah didn't shade the people of Medina with a cloud. The Jewish tribes of Medina, Banu Qurayda, Banu Qaynuqa, he didn't, he didn't shade them with a cloud. Who did he shade with a cloud? Back in the day, the Jews at the time of Musa, السلام, the followers of Musa. How is he saying, I shaded you, Why is he bunching them together with those people? That's a fair question. Allah is bunching them together. And you could say, well, those people made mistakes. Yes, those people changed, you know, changed revelation. Those people disobeyed their prophet. But why should their generations be blamed for that? Why should they be bunched with those people who came much after? The only reason that's done is because there was a behavior among the Jews of Medina in their reaction to the Prophet ﷺ. There was a particular group of Jews of Medina whose reaction to the Prophet ﷺ was exactly the same attitude that their ancestors had back then. And they're being told, you're being just like them. That there's a parallel being made between the criminal element of Bani Israel at the Prophet's time and the criminal element of Bani Israel in Musa salam's time. That's the, the, okay, you want to take pride in your history? Well, you're acting like the not-so-proud moments of your history. <laughs> that's what you're acting. That's the parallel that's made. It's not all Bani Israel. You guys all, you know, did this or that. It's not like that. It's not like that. So, and the other thing that's really important in studying Bani Israel in the Qur'an is when Allah Azza wa talks to them a lot about their history, right? There's probably no other nation whose history is talked about more in the Qur'an than Bani Israel, right? Because they, one of the, one of the sources of their pride, the, the disbelievers among them, the sources of their pride in not accepting the Prophet was a pride in their history. We are a, a children of Israel tradition. We take pride in our history. There's no reason we should accept an, a Gentile messenger, a non-Israeli non, non, you know, messenger. Allah says, you want to take pride in your history? Let me teach you some lessons from history that should put a dent in that pride a little bit. And you know what? I, I take from that, Muslims, subhanAllah, love our history. We love our history. The golden age. And we cite it all the time. What we don't talk about as much is what? The not-so-proud moments of our history. The embarrassing moments of our... And it, until we accept the embarrassing moments of our history and learn to learn from them, we haven't learned anything from Bani Israel. And the way Allah talks about them in the Qur'an. Allah is literally telling a nation that's proud of its history, look, you're fine, you have prophets in your history. But you've made plenty of mistakes too as a people. 
Learn from those mistakes. That's the exact same thing we were being told. We've got plenty of mistakes in our 1400 years. There's plenty we did messed up. We have to learn from that and stop saying, oh, I wish we could be back 600, you know, six centuries ago or nine centuries ago. Oh, those were the good days. Ulama were running around with books in their hand and people were fighting with each other about, you know, differences of opinion on little things and then hugging each other afterwards. And it was a happy time. Uh, you know, rainbows and sunshine. No. We've, we've had plenty of, you know, really sad times in our history too. Really sad occasions of our history. And we have to acknowledge them. In this case, they're being told, oh, okay, so, you know, look at this comparison. The Prophet, how can he be a legitimate prophet? He can't even read. Allah says, oh, but you have lots of books. Right? He can't even read it. You have so many books. Asfar. As far as volumes of books comes from Safar. Safar. What's the other meaning of Safar? Travel. Because literally you have to travel through a book. Your finger, your eye has to travel. And if it's a long journey, it's called Safar. So volumes of books are called As far because literally you're journeying through the text. You're navigating it. Line by line by line by line. And so Allah says, the example of the donkey... يَحْمِلُ asfara As it's loaded. As it's loaded, or as it carries. Loads and loads of books. What does it mean? It's got a lot of books on the shelf. It's got a lot of books that it can cite or, you know, claim ownership of. But what have you internalized from those books? Nothing. They're just burdens on your back. Nothing's gone in. The, 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 the donkey is being used as a means of humiliation. And on top of that, books on the back, because the donkey is burdened by those books. I wish I didn't have to carry all these. I don't know, and obviously, there's no relationship between the books and the donkey, except that it's a, it's a nuisance. This is the relationship you have with your books, the real teachings they have. So the, the corrupt element among you just changes them, because it's such a burden. And you throw it behind your backs. And by the way, it's on the donkey's back. And in the previous discussion about Bani Israel in Surah Al-Baqarah, you know, Nabaduhu Wara'aduhurihim that threw it behind their backs. And now it's on their back. You know? As though they don't even know. They threw the truth behind their back as though they don't even know. What do we do? What do we we just if there's an if there's a significant population among us who claims to have loyalty to the Quran, claims to be genuine to the Quran, but knows nothing of it. Doesn't speak genuinely of it. I recently saw an ayah being translated at a program, إِنَّ هَذِهِ أُمَّتُكُمْ أُمَّةً وَاحِدَةً وَأَنَا رَبُّكُمْ فَاعْبُدُونَ It's a beautiful ayah. This is your ummah. A single ummah. نَصْبْ عَلَى الْمَدْحِ This is a single ummah. And I am your master. فَاعْبُدُونَ Then enslave yourselves to me. Translation, your community is one community. And I am your Lord. It's a community. There's a big American flag on there too. And it was like an event to invite non-Muslims. The Quran says, your community is one community. I slapped myself on the face. I, no, they didn't. They took Ummah. And okay, maybe you can get away with translating Ummah as community. Fine. But the word Ummah, in that ayah, in particular is the Muslim faith community 
is not your community wherever you live is one community and I am your God one nation under God look you say one nation under God Quran says that let's hang out you can't do that you can't misrepresent the book like that I'm not saying you can't have a program about getting along with each other and being responsible citizens and opening channels of communication great do it don't drag the book into it where it doesn't belong there's plenty of put that ayah there, man. Cooperate in all good things. There's no mafrul bihi in the ayat. Cooperate in what? But not with who. So there's no restriction on who you can cooperate with. If it's a good thing. Don't cooperate in sin and evil and animosity. No mafrul bihi, which means if it's Muslims doing sin and evil, don't cooperate with them. You're not obligated to join Muslims in any cause. If they're wrong, they're wrong. And if non-Muslims are right, they're right. You can join them in a good cause, no problem. There's plenty of other ayat that don't have to land you in trouble. You don't have to do that. This is, I, I feel very strongly about misrepresentation of Qur'an. Back in the 90s, you know when the email forwards were still a big thing? Now it's just Facebook spam, but email forwards back in the day? You get these email forwards, if you pray Fajr in the morning, then your day will be full of light. And if you pray Dhuhr on time, then... You'll get a raise at work. And if you pray Asr on time, then your children will never go bald. And if you pray Maghrib, then you know, your crooked teeth will be straightened out or whatever. Like they got a whole list of like benefits for every Salah. And at the bottom of the email forward, wisdom from the Holy Quran. I'm like, Please forward it to 20 people because if you don't, then you know, Allah will ask you on Judgment Day why you didn't spread the good. Another wisdom from the Quran, forward people to forward 20 people. <laughs> Serious? This is a gross, like, you know when this happens? When people as a, as a culture, they're distant from the book, and they are comfortable with that, then they start making assumptions about the book. And it's just a book on their backs, literally it's on the back shelf. You know, it's in the dashboard of the car. That's all, that's all it belongs, that's the only place it belongs. And you can talk about it. Oh, Quran never says this or that or the other. Quran never says that. Quran doesn't say you have to be so uptight, you know. Really, what does the Quran say? Please, enlighten me, because you just cited the Quran. Don't bring it up in conversation if you don't know what you're talking about. Don't bring it up. كَمَثَلِ الْحِمَارِ يَحْمِلُ أَسْفَارًا How terrible the, the, the example of the nation that lied against the miracles of Allah, lied against the revelations of Allah, ignoring revelation, not learning revelation, having it in your possession and not caring to take the time to learn it, is a denial, is lying against the ayat of Allah. That is a form of taqdeeb. Wallahu la yadil qawm al-zalimeen. And Allah does not guide the wrongdoing nation. What is the wrong of that nation? They were given revelation and favor more than any other nation. They were supposed to represent the teachings of God more than anybody else, so that the world could see what guidance looks like. So when they don't live up to it, then they are the ultimate deniers of revelation. The people that are more exposed to the truth become more responsible for it. So if the Muslims are more exposed, we are the believers, claim to be believers in this book, then if we don't represent its teachings, then we are the most responsible. Before we talk about, oh, Brother Numan, I have a question. Are Christians going to hell? What about Mother Teresa? What about Lady Diana? She was nice. You know? I heard the guy she was with was Muslim. Does that mean she can kind of tag along into Jannah? Can I, you know? 
Is this one going to hell? Why are you so worried about everybody else going to hell, man? We got a problem. Are we going to heaven? Because <laughs> if, if your ticket, your reservation is confirmed, then you can worry about booking somebody else's tickets. You know? We got no reservations. We ho- we're supposed to be hopeful. And when you study what Allah says about Bani Israel, and you just take the word Bani Israel out and put us there, <laughs> apply, like 200% application. Sometimes I even argue, man, they would have been like, man, we was bad, but yous, whew, you guys are on another level. You know? Then it says, قُلْ يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ هَادُوا إِنْ زَعَمْتُمْ أَنَّكُمْ أَوْلِيَاءُ لِلَّهِ Those of you that have been Hadu means those have been engaged in Judaism. Literally, the verb for Judaism is Hada Yuhadi. Okay? In Zamtum, in Zam, if you if you've got the confident assumption, Annakum that you are the the friends, close friends, protected friends of Allah, Mindun and Nas, as opposed to all other people. Fatamannaul Maut, then wish for death. Why wish for death? If you're guaranteed Jannah. Guaranteed Jannah. What are you doing here? You got to pay the bills here. You get old here. You get sick here. You have to eat food and go to the bathroom and you sweat. And you have to take showers. Why do you want to deal with all this? You got Jannah guaranteed. Get out of here. Go. Yeah, Allah, take me. I can't wait. If you've already got a guaranteed seat, you shouldn't be interested in dunya anymore. It's very simple. I mean, if you were... You live in a crummy little apartment and you got a letter that you have been awarded, you know, you somehow won some random citizen drawing. The state has awarded you the biggest mansion two blocks down. You're going to stay in that little crummy house? You're going to go. The house is yours. It's guaranteed. It's got your name on it. They're waiting. Just go. You keep saying you're guaranteed, you know, you're saved, you're saved, you're saved. How come you don't even wish for it? How come we never see you praying for it? What's that? We actually, in Islam, have been taught a dua about death. Among many. Take us among the righteous. Give me death among the righteous. We make a dua. It's fair al-amr. Give death to us. <laughs> among the righteous. Subhanallah. Go ahead and wish for it. Now, and by the way, this is the same thing that happens to a huge population of Muslims. Completely confident. Why would Allah burn us in hell? We, should, we said, La ilaha illallah. The Prophet said, Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Man qala la ilaha illallah, dakhala jannah. The Prophet's words, man. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Whoever said, La ilaha illallah, enters jannah. Done. You know, there's, there's the shart and there's jawab shart. Man qala la ilaha illallah, jawab shart, dakhala jannah. I already said it. I said it when I was like seven. I'm set. I'm set. Really, is that all the Prophet ever said? What else did he say that day? What else did he say to the companion that he was talking to? How was that understood by that companion? That companion go on a, like a sin spree because he's already said, La ilaha illallah. I said, I'm, I can go on a shopping spree now because I, you know, I'm already guaranteed Jannah. How are you understanding this better than any companion of the Prophet who was actually told this? You know, how? What does the Qur'an say about this? What do other hadiths say about this? 
Or would you just like to take one little bit and run with it? One bit, I don't need to hear anything else now because I got this hadith, it saves me. By the way, that reminds me of a nation. They take a part of the book, they leave a part of the book. You believe in some parts of the law, you ignore other parts of the law, you believe in some parts of the book, you take other parts of the book. Quran says, those who took the Quran and tore it to, tore it to pieces. It literally tore it to pieces. This one little piece I'll hold on to. That's all I need. SubhanAllah. And wish for death in kuntum sadiqeen. If in fact you're truthful, abadan. They're not going to be wishing for it ever. Because of what their hands have already sent forward, which implies because of the investments they've already made. The kinds of things they've already done, they know. They know. They don't want death. And also means the invest- all the investments they've made are about a better future where? In dunya. Why would you want to leave if all your investments are tied here? You know? When, you, when somebody makes an investment, they are anticipating and, imp- and very patiently waiting for the t- day where the return on their investment comes. If all your investments are for this world, and you're just waiting for that day to come, payday to come. Our deen is about investing in dunya for yourself, fine. But more so investing in your akhirah. Allah doesn't let us do one or the other, we have to combine those two things. Like when you and I earn a halal income, then we've invested in our dunya and our akhirah at the same time. We've done both. You know, when you know, uh, uh, we give sadaqah, when we give sadaqah, it's really awesome. It's actually a dunya and akhirah investment. Did you know that? That giving sadaqah is a dunya investment and an akhirah investment. Right? So the Prophet promised us money doesn't go down when you give charity. So if you give charity, if you give charity, then you're, it will be refunded by Allah guaranteed in this world. Guaranteed. And you've deposited it into a halal interest account, akhirah account, that pays, you know, at least 700 times. So you deposited a buck and it's 700, and then Allah adds, Wallahu yasha. Allah prom- multiplies on top of that for whoever He wants. And when Allah says Allah multiplies on top of that, I was like impressed with 700. But you know what? It's not 700. You know the ayah that says, You plant a seed, fi kulli sumbulatin mi'atu habba. Every, every one of the, 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 the corns, the, ear, the ears of grain, gives another 100 seeds. So now that's what? 700 seeds. But every one of those rises and gives 100. Seven, seven ears and 700. So it's 700 times 700 times 700 times. And it infinitely goes. And then Allah says, Allah multiplies on top of that for whoever He wants. Because this is something still you can put in a calculator and say it's infinite. But your infinite is different from God's infinite. So He says, this is just what you can imagine. I got on top of that on a whole multiplication scheme that's beyond your calculus. Wallahu yasha. So you, it's a pretty good investment. Akhirah investment. Don't use this in a fundraiser. I'm not giving this to you to use in a fundraiser. Okay. Don't get me started on fundraisers. We already did that in Surah Al-Baqarah. They're never going to wish for it because they haven't made any investments in the Akhirah. When we invest in dunya, and when we save in dunya, is it in danger? 
Our savings in dunya, are they in danger? Sure. You can save your money as money, but your account is only so much FDIC insured. You can save your money and turn it into gold or coins or whatever, put it in a vault, but how secure is your vault? You can put your money in the real estate market and buy a building and then get flooded. Earthquake comes. Whatever comes. When you and I deposit our money in an akhirah account, it's guaranteed. By the way, there is only one threat to your akhirah account. It's only one threat. You know what that is? That is you, you show off or you bring up into any human being how you gave that money. It's called al-man wal-adha. Man, I gave that masjid. I gave you people $10,000. What have you done with it? Don't even listen to what I have to say. It's gone. Got nothing left in the Akhirah account. The quote underneath, you said, you brought it up to another human being and showed off about it or hurt other people's feelings about your charity. It is over. You get nothing in the Akhirah. So if you're going to write a big check, then be quiet. No expectations, no nothing. Just write it. It's between you and Allah and that's it. Otherwise, you could have bought a big, at least you could have bought a big screen TV or something. In dunya, you could have at least enjoyed it in dunya. You got no dunya and no akhira now. Nothing. Allah is fully knowledgeable of the wrong, of people who do wrong. Tell them, no doubt, the death that you people are running away from, then absolutely it is going to meet you. It is on the way, on its way to meeting you. It is meeting you. It's the ing almost. But it is bound to meet you, is a good translation of mulaqikum. This is a mufa'ala, an irregular mufa'ala form. Then you will all be returned, taken back to the knower of the unseen and the seen. And he will thoroughly inform you of all the things that you used to do. So, there's three ayat dedicated to death. The Bani Israel, they don't really carry their book. And when they don't really carry their book, then what happens? They, they, they wish to live forever. They don't want to die. They want to run from, from death. They don't wish for it. And Allah says, you will face it. And you will be brought before Allah. You will be brought to trial. So there's a relationship Allah makes between not having a connection with Torah and then being afraid of death. Being afraid of death. There's a connection between not... There's a relationship between not being tied to revelation and developing a fear of death. The Prophet ﷺ was afraid the ummah will get weak. Other nations will eat from us like wolves. And the Sahaba said, are we going to be few? You know, are we going to, have, are going to be few on that day? He says, no. al wahan. You'll have weakness. What was the weakness? And, and you know, how will you alleviate that weakness? How will you alleviate that weakness? كَثْرَةُ ذِكْرِ الْمَوْتِ Quran. He says, remember death a lot? And do what? Recite Quran. The two things that will remove weakness from you will be remembrance of death and staying tied with revelation. In this surah, what was the problem mentioned of the Jews? 
the two things that were connected, one, they had a superficial relationship with their book, it was on their backs, and next, they're running from death. And the Prophet says, you will face that weakness. SubhanAllah. <laughs> like one shoe compared to the other, we're going to be like Bani Israel. Like one slipper compared to another slipper. SubhanAllah. Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu. Now the, the Salatul Jum'ah is being mentioned. And Salatul Jum'ah is being mentioned very strategically. How do you remember death? And what is supposed to connect you to revelation? Individually, I'm supposed to recite Qur'an. Individually, I'm supposed to make Salat. But on a weekly level, on a weekly basis, Allah Azza wa Jal forced us to hold a convention. He institutionalized a convention. And this incredible convention, you don't have to send flyers for it. You don't have to make a Facebook event out of it. You don't have to make phone calls to invite people. They will show up on their own. The religious ones, the not-so-religious ones. The knowledgeable ones, the not-so-knowledgeable ones. The practicing ones, the not-so-practicing ones. The young ones and the old ones. They will all show up on their own for those 20 minutes of a khutbah and then that salat. They'll just show up. Some late, some early, but they'll just show up in more numbers than anything else. In more numbers than any other event. Every single week the Ummah holds a meeting. It's called Salatul Jum'ah. You know, no other nation on earth has a con- congregation like that on a weekly basis. Yes, you know, we're living in the, the, the state of mega churches, right? So 10, 20,000 people in a mega church every week. Is that the case across the Christian world that every Sunday churches are packed? No. Is it across the Muslim world that every Friday masajid are packed? Every Friday masajid are packed? Even in the places that have the worst khutbahs on the planet? Even the places where the khatib is releasing sleeping gas from his mouth, when he starts the khutbah, he, just, he gets up there and goes, and alhamdulillah. <laughs> and even he falls asleep. <laughs> They're still packed. They're still packed. Even people that give the, like, the most absurd khutbahs. Today's khutbah is about nail polish. <laughs> people will still come next week because it's Jum'ah. It's Jum'ah. And they won't, they hopefully, still not talk in the khutbah. They'll just go, <sighs> So they're going to do 25, 30 awkward minutes. You know? Even in the khutbahs where you will learn everything under the sky. And another thing about Islam is that <laughs> you just, it's all over the place. People will still show up. They'll still show up. Why? Because what's the purpose of Jum'ah? This ayah this defines Jum'ah. Listen to it carefully. Ya yuhalladina amanu, those of you who claim to believe, Ida nudi al-salat, when the call is made for prayer, min yawmil jumu'ah, from a part of the day of Friday, min tab'idiyah, a part of the day of Friday, meaning you don't have to give up your entire Friday, like the Jews had to give up the entire Saturday. Min is a part of the day of Friday, you're going to be called for prayer. From yawmil jumu'ah, jumu'ah by the way, from jama'ah yajma'u, jam'an, to gather. Yawmil jumu'ah, literally the day of Gathering, and that's another reason why on Judgment Day we will be gathered on the day of Al Jumu'ah. Friday doesn't begin to communicate why it's called Yomul Jumu'ah. It's called Yomul Jumu'ah because every Jumu'ah is supposed to be a reminder of Judgment Day itself. Because that one of the names of Judgment Day is Yomul Jamu'ah from Jumu'ah, from the word Jumu'ah, and our congregations are a gathering. But you know what? That means our gathering is a reminder of a much larger gathering, which is Day of Judgment. 
There are rehearsals for Judgment Day. Salat in Jama'ah is a rehearsal for Judgment Day at a smaller level. Yomul Jumu'ah is a rehearsal for Judgment Day at a bigger level. Hajj is a rehearsal for Judgment Day at the largest level. The, the religious spiritual exercises we have in Islam are all somehow tied to Judgment Day. What was the subject right before? Running away from death. The Muslim comes to Jumu'ah, he can't run from death. He's being reminded of Judgment Day just by the fact that he's gathered. Just by the fact that he's gathered. Subhanallah. It's, it's embedded, it's installed into the mechanics of our religion. فَسْعَوْا لَا ذِكْرِ اللَّهِ Then rush to the remembrance of Allah. فَسْعَوْا Rush. Rush. Make it a priority. I didn't ask you for the whole day. I asked you for a part of the day. So why wouldn't you rush? Why would you take it easy for Jumu'ah? I didn't. I, the nation before you was given the entire day to give worship. I've asked you for so much less. Why would you be lax about that? فَسْعَوْا إِلَىٰ ذِكْرِ Rush to the remembrance of Allah. And the entire Jumu'ah from beginning to end is described not فَسْعَوْا إِلَىٰ الْخُطْبَةِ فَسْعَوْا إِلَىٰ الْاجْتِمَاعِ فَسْعَوْا إِلَىٰ ذِكْرِ The essence of Friday prayer is remembering Allah. It's the remembrance of Allah. Which means our Friday prayer, as we're rushing to it, we should be doing extra dhikr of Allah. Our intention for walking into the Jum'ah is not to be entertained, not to be given new information. The khatib never talks about what's current events or this or that. You didn't come there for current events. That's your idea of what Jum'ah is. Allah is telling you khutbah is about what? Dhikrullah. Remembering Allah as a people. Wadharul bayi' Leave business. Leave sales. Literally sales. Now, just a little bit about in our times and across the, 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 the world, uh, and especially in the West, Muslims say, what's the time for Jum'ah? Oh, it's 1.15. Okay. Okay, okay, that means I can leave the office at 1.10. That means I can park the car by 1.25. That means I can walk over three blocks, 1.35. But Salat is at 1.45. I still catch like 10 minutes of the last part of the khutbah. Right? And that's a casual attitude. It's just, you know. And then the rushing after, the, the mad rush after Salat al-Jumu'ah is for what reason? Oh, I got this is a lunch break too, I got to eat something. And the mad rush to leave the masjid, but people are standing outside and chatting for a long time. Right? So nobody was rushing in to chat with Allah. But people got a lot of time after to chat with each other. This day was supposed to be about Allah. It was supposed to be about Allah. I'm not saying you shouldn't socialize with people on Friday. But if you're gonna, at least give Allah his due. Go early. Dress your best. Don't look like a bum. You know. Guys, recite Quran in the morning. Make it an event. Jumai is supposed to be a rehearsal for Judgment Day itself. This is the day you and I are gonna face Allah. And when Allah talked about Jumu'ah, the conversation preceding was about death. Every Jumu'ah is supposed to be an extra reminder about death. Every Jumu'ah is supposed to go out of your way to remind yourself about death. Surah Al-Kahf, which we're supposed to recite as a sunnah on Friday, begins talking about how the world itself will be reduced to nothing. Nothing's going to be left here. That's what you start your Friday with. The world will come to an end. What am I if the world will come to an end? Why do I think I won't come to an end? It's a mindset. And leave sales. 
And sales, as I mentioned to you before, it came up in class. Sales is the hardest part to leave in a business. If you're writing employee checks and you have to leave, you'll leave. You know, I'll sign the paychecks later. If you're in the middle of a work project and it's boring, you'll leave. If you're in the middle of a meeting and it's going on and on forever, you'll leave early for Jumu'ah. But a customer, customer is hard to leave. Oh man, customer walks into the store and he's filling up the card. Or a client's on the phone and he's about to hand you your biggest contract of the year. And, and you're missing Jumu'ah. Now it's hard to hang up. Hey, listen, I got to go pray. It's Friday. You know, can I call you back after prayer? Excuse me? What was that? Yeah, I have to pray. You know, Fridays I'm a Muslim, and we're supposed to be there at a particular time. And I would really like to get your contract, but I have a religious obligation. What do you mean religious obligation? You must not be... Okay, fine then. And you're like, oh, no, 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 if, no, it's okay, it's okay. We can finish our meeting. No, you can't. Guy's sitting in the parking lot in a masjid on the phone while khutbah is going on. And he's going to finish his call and take a sweet time getting inside the masjid. Allah doesn't know. <laughs> Subhanallah. وَذَرُوا الْبَيْعِ Man, leave the sale. ذَلِكُمْ خَيْرٌ لَكُمْ That's better for you. إِن كُنْتُمْ تَعْلَمُمْ If in fact you know. فَإِذَا قُضِيَةِ الصَّلَاةِ When the prayer is done with. When the prayer has been executed. فَانْتَشِرُوا فِي الْأَرْضِ You may spread out in the land. Go ahead, get out there. That's fine. وَابْتَغُوا مِنْ فَضْلِ اللَّهِ And pursue from Allah's favor. Go find work. Do good things. Go get a promotion. Go get that, secure that contract. Whatever. You know why that's important? It's really interesting how the modern world turned out this way. The most unproductive time of the week for employees and businesses is Friday afternoon after like 2 p.m. You know that? Like people check out mentally, even though they're going to leave the office at 5, mentally they check out at like 2. And they're in like, you know, vacation mode. They're already like thinking about the movie they're going to watch tonight, or the party, or this, or that's Friday night, TGIF. Right? The Muslims are being told, Jumu'ah is done, get back to work, man. And Allah is specifically offering us an incentive that after Jumu'ah, if you do pursue the favor of Allah, because Allah highlights the pursuit of His favor, at that particular time, there's some barakah in it. So you're going to get more done in those few hours than you've gotten done at any other time. Everybody else is all checked out and you check in. But that doesn't mean you become worldly. And remember Allah a lot. So that you may attain success. This is the last ayah of the surah. And this last ayah of the surah is very heavy. This last ayah is about an incident that happened in the Prophet's time, sallallahu alaihi The Muslims are a mix of people that have been with him for a long time. They're a mix of new companions, young people, you know. And this is happening in Medina, and the Prophet's giving his sermon, sallallahu alaihi And they don't realize how important it is to attend the entire sermon. The injunctions, the specific injunctions about not talking during the khutbah, not leaving the khutbah, khutbah being a part of salat, that hasn't been internalized yet. It's just early on. There's an early, you know. Uh, early inauguration of the Friday prayer. So what happens is there is a trade caravan. Trade caravans are basically nowadays, you know how you have the computer expo? Or you have the car expo? 
and you have these centers and people go, thousands of people go and attend these things. We're in Texas, we should talk about the gun expo, you know, or the hunting expo or whatever, the fishing expo. And people go, enthusiasts go, uh, younger guys might be familiar with Comic-Con, right? Or what's the other one? Evo? I don't know what's it called. The video game one? Right? Thousands and thousands of people go. And it, does, it comes once a year. It's not a weekly thing. And back in the day, they had convention centers. But, or well, we have convention centers. Back in the day, they had camels. Just walk by. Elephants, camels. Just passing by. You're like, oh, Comic-Con is in town. From Iraq or something. You know? So Jumu'ah is going on and a caravan is passing by and there's all this like, you know, and when these things happen, you know how the, every booth has like music blasting and they've got like confetti and free candy and all this stuff, you know? So it's like, a, it's commotion. It's commotion. So the people are sitting in Jumu'ah and some people see the caravan settle down and now there's two kinds of people. There are people that are business people. They're business people. When business people see those kinds of conventions, they see an opportunity for networking, making sales, making connections. They go for business reasons. But then there's another kind of crowd there too. What's the other kind of crowd that goes to these conventions? Faltus. The extras. The insan farigh. Insan fadi. The guy with no purpose in life. Hey man, this is a convention. Let's go. It's a car show. We're going to sit in a car, then take a picture, then put it on Facebook. And thus our purpose as human beings will be fulfilled. You know, there's, there's that, that, that crowd. Now the first people that get up, so the halaqah was going on, and Allah says, وَإِذَا رَأُوا تِجَارَةً أَوْ لَهْوًا When they saw business or entertainment. So which of the two did he mention first? Business. Because the first people to be attracted towards that are obviously people that are going for business. But now 10, 12, 13 people are standing there talking about something and the guy that's like, you know, has no purpose in life, he's a college student, he looks at that and goes, hey, 12, 13 people talking there? Something must be going down. Let me go check it out. Why are all those people gathered there? Let me gather there too. So let me go see what's happening. So the, the next wave of crowd comes not for business but for entertainment. So the first draw was business and the second draw was entertainment. So when they saw business or they saw entertainment, they rushed towards it. They, break, they broke off towards it is the better meaning of the word here. There's two expressions. Okay. So for example, in Surah Ali Imran, we learn, min They would have broken off from you, the Prophet is told, the Sahaba would have broken off from you, if such and such thing happened. Infilad is used when glass breaks. When glass breaks and the, the pieces shatter, they break off from the original. When glass breaks, can you put it back together? You can't. So when you break off in a way that the gathering that was originally there can no longer be recovered, that's called infilad. When Allah says, in fadlu ilayha, as opposed to saying, sa'aw ilayha. You know, sa'aw ilayha. Asra'u ilayha. They rush towards it. He says, in fadlu ilayha. Meaning they broke the gathering of Jumu'ah. And they disrupted it in a way that it could not be recovered again. What we're learning in, what we're learning then is, disturbing Jumu'ah, or dis disturbing that kind of gathering, takes very little. 
And when people start walking away from it, it's an un irreparable distraction. You know when people start walking away out of a speech in numbers? Like one or two people, somebody has to go use the bathroom, some kids going crazy or whatever. You take your psycho child for a walk. That's normal. Okay? There are some parents who are, subhanAllah, they've listened to their children yell so much, scream so much that they become deaf to it. So they don't hear it. Everybody else can hear it. They can't hear it. This kid's in your arm and he's going, wah, 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 like fire alarm. Like you can't hear yourself talk. And she's holding him next to his head and he's like, Auntie, could you take him for a walk? Please, please, just a little bit. You can come back when he, you know, is not the Hulk anymore. You can bring him back. You know? Fine, some people leave. But when people start leaving in rows and rows and rows, is that distracting to the one speaking? Is that even distracting to the people that are trying to listen? Of course. In fuddu ilayha. They rushed towards it. وَتَرَكُوكَ qaima, And they left you standing. Left who standing? Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa Now the beginning of this surah told us, why does the Prophet do what he, oh, how does he do what he does? يَتْلُوا عَلَيْهِمْ آيَاتِهِ وَيُزَكِّيهِمْ وَيُعَلِّمُهُمُ الْكِتَابِ وَالْحِكْمَةِ All four things come together in Jumu'ah. All four of those things unify in Jumu'ah. The Prophet is reciting the ayat onto them. This is a cleansing experience. He's teaching them something new. He's giving them a reminder. You know? The fact that they're acting out, they're actually in the act of obeying Allah at that time in Jumu'ah. It's in and of itself a hikmah. They're fulfilling that entire legacy every Friday. So what we're seeing, the Prophet has a strategy, has a mission that he was given and how to execute it. But the way to execute it in the most like, effective way or one of the pillars of that execution is Jumu'ah itself. How important is every Friday khutbah? SubhanAllah. Every Friday khutbah. So, so important in every community. It's such a huge amana. The biggest responsibility, in my opinion, in American masajid, the biggest responsibility is an amazing khutbah every week. It better be a really, really good khutbah. You know, in the spirit of having understood what the Prophet's mission was, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, in light of Surah Al-Jumu'ah. I mean, this is the surah about Jumu'ah, guys. This should dictate our mentality about Jumu'ah prayer. And what it's supposed to, and unfortunately, one of the most neglected, uh, you know, uh, responsibilities in our communities, the chandeliers are being imported from Italy, the carpets are coming from Persia, you know, the marbles being imported, the parking lots being repaired four times over, but there's no investment into what? The khatib itself, the khutbah itself, and the khutbah is more about the organization than it is about the, the about Allah's book. It's more about the fundraising, about anything else. It's sad. Oh, it's more about politics than anything else. It's, it's, it's a violation, really, of this, this sacred you know, responsibility that we all have. Anyhow, so they, they left you standing. They left you standing. Tell them what Allah has is better than entertainment and better than business. You see, in the beginning of the ayah, business was mentioned first. And then entertainment was mentioned. By the end of the ayah, Allah says, whatever Allah has is better than entertainment is mentioned first, and then business is mentioned. Why? In that particular incident, it was a trade caravan. So obviously, who's more interested first? Traders. Secondarily, it has some entertainment value. Right? But the entire problem of Jumu'ah is remembering Allah. فَسَعُوا إِلَىٰ ذِكْرِ اللَّهِ 
In remembering Allah, you have two distractions. You're busy at work or busy entertaining yourself. Which is the more common culprit? Which is the wider culprit? Entertainment. Some people are business. Some people are really busy at work. All people get distracted by entertainment. So we went from a specific incident where the bigger culprit was business. So business was mentioned first. By the end of the ayah, we're talking about the universal problem. And the, the more universal of the two is entertainment. So Allah says, whatever Allah has is better than entertainment. Allah here didn't even say. Now, who did they leave behind? They left the Prophet behind, the best khatib on the planet ever. They left the best khatib on the planet ever. So Allah didn't even say, What the Prophet has, his khutbah is better than your entertainment. Go back and listen. Allah said, What Allah has is better. This is huge wisdom from Allah. Why? Because the Prophet's not always going to be giving the khutbah. It's going to be a really boring khatib one day. There's going to be a guy whose Arabic is terrible, whose tajweed is bad, who's speaking a foreign language. I used to go, when I was in college, I used to go sometimes to a masjid, Masjid Medina, 2nd and 11th. The khutbah was in Bangla. I don't speak any Bangla. But you know, I had a job nearby and I, that's the only masjid I could go to. And I used to sit there and listen quietly to the khutbah in Bangla. The whole, and I'm, you know, I'm not going to talk or walk away or... I forget this. No, it's Jum'ah. It's Jum'ah. I don't care if you get it or not. It's Jum'ah. You're not doing it for anybody else. You're doing it for Allah. That's it. It's the end of it. You can complain. We should have better khutbahs. Come on, they're in America. They should speak English. Actually, that little part of Manhattan is Bangladesh. It's not really America. So that's okay. They can do Bangladesh. <laughs> you know. And it's better than business. And Allah is the best of all providers. You know what's really beautiful at the, at the end of this? What provision has Allah talked about most of the surah? The revelation. The Prophet's company, sallallahu alayhi wa What he does for you. What, what he offers you. He offers you, you know, the, the ayat of revelation. He offers you cleansing. He teaches you the book and the wisdom. That's the ultimate rizq. Guidance. Those four things are guidance. That's the ultimate rizq. Wallahu khayrul raziqeen. Allah is the best of all providers. Subhanallah. So as we conclude this surah, inshallah ta'ala, I just wanted to tie up. Allah mentioned, you know, basically in the beginning, he mentioned the methodology of our Prophet, in those four things. Then he mentioned, when you don't execute this methodology, a community becomes hollow, so they carry a book on their backs. And they start becoming worldly, and they get scared of death. And then Allah mentions at the end, well, the way to maintain the spirit of the, that strategy of the Prophet is the institution of Jumu'ah prayer. So these three things are actually very logically connected to one another. And having said that, inshallah ta'ala, we conclude uh, our, our dafs on Surah Al-Jumu'ah. Hopefully I can finish Surah Al-Munafiqoon in one session. Also 11 ayat, but also a very heavy subject. Barakallahu li wa lakum fil Qur'an al-Hakim. Wa nafa'ni wa iyaakum bil ayat. Wa dhikr al-Hakim. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.